Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, to, be Christ. to Christ. Okay, so these are the very last words uh, that Jesus spoke in the very greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world. And uh, we'll cover this next week, and next week will be the last sermon uh, in this series. But, but one of the things that we'll, we'll see next week is that after Jesus was done with His teaching, it says that all the people who were listening to Him were astonished. And, and the word for astonished is a, is a really strong word in, in the original Greek. It means slack-jawed, undone, ruined, thunderstruck. And, you know, one of the reasons why people had this response to Jesus is it says that He spoke with authority. There, were, there was a certain kind of muscle, uh, there was a certain kind of, of, of thrust to His teaching that, that, you know, the people that were listening knew that this is coming from a place that matters and I, I need to tune in because He speaks with authority. And another reason perhaps why they were so astonished is how forceful and how repetitive Jesus is at the end of this sermon about the coming judgment. And, you know, I talked about this a little bit last week. The Sermon on the Mount ends with a bang. There are basically four teachings that are focusing on this one theme of the coming judgment. Jesus talks about how there are two gates in life. There's the broad gate that leads to destruction, and then there's the narrow gate through Jesus that leads to life. And then he talks about two different kinds of prophets or two different kinds of, of spiritual teachers. They're the false kind who emphasize that broad road, which is typically an easier, more smooth sailing road. And, and, and then the true prophets who uh, emphasize the teachings of Christ in their entirety, which I'll get to toward the end of this sermon. And then the third teaching is about true disciples and false or counterfeit disciples. And then finally, what we've got today is a teaching from Jesus about two houses that on the outside optically look very similar to one another, but they are sitting on two different foundations, which is under the surface. You can't necessarily see it with the naked eye, but one of them is on the rock on a foundation of rock, which means it will withstand the coming storm of judgment, and the other is built upon a foundation of sand, which means that the coming storm is going to flatten and devastate that house and everyone who lives in it. And so, when we moved to Nashville, this is about five, five and a half years ago, moved here from New York, and, um, you know, we're, we're thinking, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to have this new place, new house that we got, you know, over off Roan Tree Drive in the Highland Park neighborhood, and, 
you know, there are a few projects we'd like to do. You know, we'd like to do some painting, a few updates here and there. You know, what do we want to invest in to sort of make this our own? And we found out after living in this house for just a couple of weeks that the first essential project we needed to invest in ended up costing us about $6,000 was our crawl space. You know, that one part of your house that where you never spend any time, it kind of disgusts you to go down in it, and so you stay away from it. For, you know, as often as you can. It's dark. It's, it's you know, it, it's just all the things that, that don't make a home. The crawl space, right? The area underneath the house required a $6,000 investment because there was water pooling in there and it needed to be graded so the water would drain out and needed to surround it with things that would trap moisture so that moisture wouldn't fill the, the crawl space because if moisture fills the, the crawl space, it can lead to uh, toxic mold issues happening, which, which becomes potentially a silent killer for people who live in the house. And it could also you know, be a, a draw for termites. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's urging his listeners to look beneath the surface and, and to recognize that what is under the house is just as important as what is in and around the house. You know, he's basically teaching this. You can have two people side by side, and, and, and from an optics point of view, they can both look sturdy, they can both look strong, they can both look put together, but the reality between these two people is that one is a sturdy soul ready for the storm when it comes, and the other is a fragile soul that will be devastated when the storm comes, and you won't be able to tell the difference between the two of them until the storm comes. Maybe a picture from uh, one of the older texts of the Bible would be Job and his wife. Both of them shared everything in common. They both had a lot of money. They both had ten children. They both had an enormous property and a thriving business until a storm came. Terrorists attacked them, and, and in that attack, they, they lost their money, they lost their property, they lost their business, they lost all ten of their children. It was, it was a devastating crash. And, you know, you've got Job and his wife, they're going through the same experience, but, but it was the crash, it was the storm that came that revealed what was beneath the house for both of them and the foundations upon which they were built. Job responds, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job's wife, standing right next to him, responds, curse God and die. And so, what I'd like to do is unpack this last teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount under three headings. A storm is coming. It is as bad as it sounds. And there's a shelter with plenty of room. So, first, a storm is coming. Verses 25 and 27, Jesus describes it this way. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house. We're all, on the judgment day, going to be beat against by a storm. And the question is, will we be able to stand? You remember last week I, I, I talked about how in the Bible, if you want to find the exclamation points in the Bible, look for wherever the person who's talking or writing repeats themselves. 
Repetition is sort of like an exclamation point. It's a form of punctuation in ancient biblical literature. And so here, Jesus repeats Himself. He, de- he describes the storm two times, the coming judgment twice. And then, also, this is the fourth consecutive passage. This is the fourth consecutive teaching of Jesus about the final judgment. It's clearly something that He wants us to tune into and, and not miss. And, you know, there, there are no doubt, as there are every week, I meet people all the time who, who are in our services who, who would maybe describe themselves as spiritually curious or, or maybe even uh, skeptical about Christianity and about organized religion, maybe, maybe claim to be spiritual but not religious because, you know, the major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they all teach about judgment, and I just don't like the, the idea of judgment. As I see it, God as I understand God is a God of love. And, 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 and to this, I, I think Jesus would say, and, and, and I would want to say also with all due respect, if there's a family living in a house and the kids have gone to bed and mom and dad are, are watching the weather, you know, or something on TV, and then the weather report comes up sort of suddenly in the middle of the show, and it says that there was a tornado on the way, and it's, it's like an F5, it's like the worst tornado ever, you know, to, to cross through Nashville, and you discover as you look, you know, at the radar, your own neighborhood is in the line of, 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 of the path of, of the tornado. What kind of parents would it be to, for them to look at each other and say, you know, let's go to the storm shelter, but let's not disturb the children. You know, they need their sleep. They need their… That would be the, that would be the most unloving thing for the parents not to, to run up yelling at the top of their lungs, alarming their children that a storm is on the way and it's deadly and we need to run for cover now so, and sweep them up in their arms and take them down to, to the shelter. It would be utterly cruel for the parents not to make an issue out of the tornado that is headed their way. You know, so, Jonathan Edwards, when I say that name, what comes to mind immediately? Is it that he was one of the first presidents of Princeton University? Is it that uh, Edwards wrote one of the most beautiful life-giving books on the subject of love in the history of books called Charity and Its Fruits? Is it all of the writings that Edwards, Edwards uh, wrote about revival and the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, reviving entire communities? Is it that Encyclopedia Britannica named Jonathan Edwards the most brilliant mind to ever step foot on American soil? Or is the first thing that comes to your mind, sinners in the hands of an angry God? You know, right? Like we're just alarmed by that, 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 the title of that sermon, right, that many of us were assigned in grade school. And we judge that book by its cover, and we still judge that book by its cover. Most of us never, ever read the sermon, but we've made judgments about Edwards. We've made judgments about the sermon because of the title. And what most of us don't know is that Edwards, when he preached this sermon could barely get through it because he was weeping, sobbing out of compassion for the, for the people that he was preaching to. 
you know, I've, I've heard it every now and then. You know, so it's, it's, it's advice that we preachers get sometimes, and I, I think it's well-intended. But the advice goes something like this. When people go to church, people don't want to hear about things like sin and judgment and, and, and you know, the judgment seat of Christ and things like hell and all these other uncomfortable subjects. What people want when they come to church is to be able to walk away and feel good about themselves. And, and again, with all due respect, you can say the same thing about somebody who's into cocaine. You get into cocaine to feel good. You get into overuse of opioids and potentially heroin because you want to feel better. Knowing all along that in the end, this is not going to lead to a good place. You know, the last three weeks, um, I have not really wanted to come in here and talk about these things. The last three weeks, I would have rather, just like this morning, stayed home and, and eaten dog food or tree bark or something rather than come again for the fourth consecutive week to talk about hell and judgment and damnation and fire. I mean, it's already 110 degrees in Nashville. And I'm just like, Lord, can I just peace out on this one? You know what I've noticed the last month or so? How many of you have come up and said, I think in your five years here, these are the best sermons you've preached. And, and I don't think they're the best sermons that I've preached. I really don't. I don't feel like I'm preaching any better or any worse than I did two years ago. What I think is that we have a whole lot of folks in whom the Spirit of God is at work to the extent that, that He has even led you, the Holy Spirit has, to love the hardest parts of the Bible and, and, and to want to hear it told true. Say what Jesus said. No less, no more. Say what He said. And it's the best sermon you'll ever preach. It's the only sermon worth preaching. That's been really heartening to me that, that so many of you are, are having the experience that, that the prophet Ezekiel had when, when, when the Spirit of God, it says, puts a scroll in front of Ezekiel and it has words of judgment. And God says to Ezekiel, put it in your mouth. I want you to eat this scroll, and he puts it in his mouth, and Ezekiel said, it tasted like honey to me. When the hard parts of Scripture start to taste like honey to you, when you say, bring it, preacher, to the harder parts of Scripture, that's a really, really good sign that, that there is a rock-solid foundation underneath you. You know, why do we tune into weather reports when, when, we, when we hear rumblings that a tornado is coming? Because we want to know before the fact in the event that we need to buy the insurance so that we're protected, in the event that we might need to evacuate, we cherish the weather report, especially when we sense that disaster might be on the way. So, I've known two groups of people to, to endure natural disasters. One is so many of you who, who went through the Nashville floods in 2010 and, and endured that. And, and, and then the other is, is uh, 
a very sizable group of people in New York City when Hurricane Sandy swept through uh, in, uh, I believe it was uh, 2012, if I'm not mistaken. This was right after we came to Nashville. And it wiped out about a third of Manhattan. Businesses, you know, places of residence just wiped out, you know, about a third of Manhattan and, and places in the other boroughs as well. And if you were here or if you happened to be in New York, you wanted that weather report. You wanted to know. Why don't we want to hear the weather report about the biggest storm that the world will ever know? Why do we want to shut our ears to the weather report? It's the truest, most accurate radar ever. This is our Creator who writes history as it unfolds. The wise man, Jesus says in verse 24, is the, 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 the person, the man, woman, or child who believes this weather report, even though you can't see the storm with your eyes right now, you have faith in the messenger. You trust the messenger. You trust Jesus enough to know that as the creator of all things, He also has the power pretty much to be the Lord of all history and to be able to name it before it happens. It is a mercy for Him to be telling us, the storm is on the way, so be ready. And, and the second thought is that it is as bad as it sounds. It is as bad as it sounds. If your house, Jesus says, is built on the sand instead of being built on the foundation of the rock, which is Christ and the Word of Christ, you will lose everything except your loneliness, except your isolation, except your misery. You will lose everything except those things. You know, I'm middle-aged, and um, because I'm middle-aged, uh, really, ever since I hit 40, mortality has been on my mind more, more than it has ever been in my lifetime. Remember those years, you know, teenagers, when you thought you were invincible, when you thought that death, it may get everybody else, but it's not going to get you, and um, that's not how I'm thinking these days. I'm thinking along the lines of, of Anne Lamott when she was asked, what do you think the world's going to look like in a hundred years? And her answer was, all new people. It's humbling. The mortality rate is one person for every one person. And, and, and so the wise person is going to ask, what am I building upon? What am I building toward? And where is it going to take me? If I'm building my life on the foundation of romance, that that's my true north, I'm forgetting that beauty is fleeting. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is fleeting. She's not going to look at age 70 like she looks at age 25. She's not going to look, he's not going to look at age 40 the way he looks at age 25. Wrinkles form, hair disappears, and so on. If I'm building on the foundation of career, I'm going to be replaced. I'm going to be forgotten. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 applies to each and every one of us. What we toil for, we're going to pass it on to somebody else, and we have no control over whether or not they use it well or use it poorly. If I build on the foundation of family, there's going to come a time when I am separated from my children. 
They're going to move out. They're going to get married. I'm going to die. They're going to die. There's going to come a time where every spouse is going to be separated from their spouse. Divorce happens. Alzheimer's happens. Death happens. If I'm building my life on the foundation of recognition, of being praised, of being remembered, it's a pretty sobering thought to think that in all likelihood, none of my great-great-great-grandchildren will ever hear my name. In all likelihood, my name, my reputation, my accomplishments, poof. That's where it's headed if I build on that foundation. You know, Thomas Merton put it this way, people spend their whole lives climbing the ladder only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning on the wrong wall. You know, all of these things that I mentioned, by the way, romance, career, recognition, family, these are all beautiful gifts of God. Money, these are all things that God lavishes on us, and and we can actually have very healthy, life-giving relationships with all of them. But wise people who are building on the foundation of the rock understand that all of these things are signs and shadows, and Jesus is the substance. All of these things are pointers, and Jesus is the point. In the end, we're all going to discover that our pursuit of love and romance, it was really our hearts crying out for the one who calls himself the bridegroom, who has deep and everlasting and and, and dying affection and resurrected affection for his bride, his people. You know, every pursuit of love and romance is ultimately a pursuit of what only Jesus can give in a lasting way. You know, every pursuit, every career pursuit is really underneath a longing for the well-done, good and faithful servant that Jesus will give to those who belong to Him. You know, every family pursuit is a longing for God as everlasting Father, for the Holy Spirit as the the comforter paraclete who comes alongside us like an affectionate mother, or Jesus, who is both our big brother who is not ashamed ever to call us his sisters and brothers, and also the bridegroom to the bride, and our siblings. It's really just a longing for the church of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell will never prevail against her. Every longing for recognition is really deep down a longing for God's pronouncement that I take great delight in you, that I rejoice over you with singing, and that though a mother may forget the nursing child at her breast, I will never forget you because you are the apple of my eye. So here's the most terrifying thing. When we mistake the pointers for the point, when we mistake the signs and shadows for the substance Himself that is Jesus… The most terrifying words that we could ever imagine hearing is, I never knew you. Depart from me. Not depart from your career, not depart from your spouse, not depart from your kids or your parents, not depart from 
recognition, not depart from your money, not depart from your career, not to depart, not depart from whatever foundation of sand you've built your whole life upon. That's not the words that, that will devastate. The words that will devastate, the only true, devast, truly devastating loss will be the words, depart from me, because in Jesus is the fulfillment of every longing of every human heart. It's all appetizer. It's all prelude. It's all prequel. Every good and perfect gift from above, from Him, to Him, through Him, are all things. Tim Keller says when God punishes somebody, when Jesus punishes somebody at the end of time, He doesn't say, fire and brimstone for you, buddy. You're going to hell and I'm glad. That, That is not in the heart of Jesus. God takes no pleasure in the death even of His enemies, even of of those who hate Him the most. He takes no pleasure in death and destruction. But what Jesus is after here is for us to understand the the only truly devastating loss will be to lose Jesus and to hear depart from me. And lastly, there is a shelter and there's plenty of room. This is why Jenny's, Jenny Owen's song that she sang for us before, before the sermon is so important about the love of God. There is a shelter and there is plenty of room. And you can't get kicked out of the shelter once you've had Jesus, you know, holding you up as your rock. It's a shelter of truth and it's a shelter of grace because Jesus came full of grace and truth. So, shelter of truth, verse 24, everyone, what an inclusive word. What an all-encompassing word. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. These words of mine, the Bible, Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, that's the foundation he's talking about. The whole Bible, the whole Jesus. Building your life on that foundation will enable you to withstand the storm like Job withstood the storm. Dan Doriani, one of my theological mentors, says it's not enough to study or applaud the words of Jesus. We must do what He says. Otherwise, we're in danger of hypocrisy, in danger of facing a great crash. When Jesus says these words of mine, it's also important to understand that these words of mine aren't just the words in the red letters. You know, Luke 24 tells us that beginning with Moses and the prophets, all the way back there to the Torah, to the beginning, Jesus explained what all the Scriptures had to say concerning Himself. So, if Moses said it, if David said it, if Paul said it, if Peter said it, if James or John said it, then Jesus said it. You know, there's another place in Matthew where the word rock is emphasized, and it's when Jesus essentially changes Cephas's name, his disciple Cephas, who became Simon Peter, right? Because Jesus asked His disciples, who do you say that I am? And, and, and Cephas responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him, that's the smartest thing you've ever said. And from this point forward, your name is going to be Rock. That's what Peter means, Petros, Rock. 
Rocky. That's your name from this point forward. Not because you're some, you know, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive kind of guy. You're going you're gonna to collapse. Like your, your days of collapsing aren't over, buddy. But it's what you just said, your confession, that I am the Christ. I'm going to build my church on that. I'm going to be the cornerstone, the foundation upon which the whole thing is built and the whole thing is held up. I'm going to be the storm shelter. You know, another, another point of wisdom is to pay closest attention to those parts of the Bible that we are least likely to underline, least likely to highlight, most likely to avoid, most likely to say, eh, he couldn't have really meant that doesn't feel right. That's when you know you're being upheld by the rock, is that you will go there, that, 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 that you understand, and you have a vision for the book of Leviticus becoming just as sexy to you as the book of John. And to keep pursuing and to keep seeking until the justice of God becomes as lovely to you as the mercy of God, the fury of God becomes just as lovely to you as the tenderness of God. And Jesus the lion becomes just as lovely to you as Jesus the lamb. You know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, do I take the whole message of the Scriptures, am I taking the whole counsel of God? Do I accept the teaching concerning the wrath of God as I do that concerning the love of God? Am I as ready to believe in the righteousness of God as in His mercy, in the justice and holiness of God as well as in His compassion and long-suffering? That is the question. The false believer, the one whose foundation is on the sand, does not face it all. He just picks out what he wants and what he likes and ignores the rest. He picks and chooses. There is a lot of picking and choosing in Western American contemporary Christianity going on right now. And it's not unique to our generation. It's, it's not unique to our part of the world. But there's a lot of it going on right now. Books and blogs everywhere. But what we have to do is listen to those parts that we are prone to avoid. Listen to our opposites as well. Listen especially to other Christians who are underlining and highlighting the parts of the Bible that you're not. What does this mean for younger Christians? Here's what it could mean, that you need the emphasis of your older siblings in Christ on personal responsibility and on the moral authority of every word of the Bible. You need that. You are not more merciful and more compassionate than God. You're fooling yourself if you think you are. And on the flip side, older Christians desperately need the wisdom of what younger Christians are emphasizing, and that is the centrality of mercy and justice in the life of a Christian and the essential diversity that is called for in the body of Christ to expand our us, like Brandy likes to say. So it's a shelter of truth. It's protective, even though sometimes and in some instances it may not feel so much that way. But then finally, it's a shelter of grace. We're going to finish where we started. 
again with something that Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that the first step to obeying the Sermon on the Mount is to realize that you can't. Because the Sermon on the Mount, remember, raises the bar and, 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 and moves beyond mere behavior to motivation. Your charitable giving, run away from getting your name on, put on donor lists. Flee that. Realize how empty it is to give in order to get your name on a donor list. Give in secret so nobody knows except you and God and the church accountant. I mean, if you want your tax break, but you know what I'm saying. Prayer. Don't, don't come up with these lofty, lofty, you know, rhetorical flourishes that, 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 that you, you flaunt, you know, publicly as you pray, but what you're really doing is showing off with how pious you are. Do it in secret. Things like fasting, spiritual disciplines, make those secret endeavors so only you and God are clued in. Murder and adultery includes hatred and lust. We're after the motive here. Don't judge people. Love your enemies. Bless and pray for those who treat you poorly so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven, and so on and so on and so on. In other words, pursue a righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, John Stott, the great Anglican minister, Bible commentator put it this way, our righteousness is to be deeper because it reaches even our hearts and our love broader because it embraces even our enemies. Okay, so if you're feeling like, oh my word, am I a Christian? Like somebody came to me after, after the service, uh, the earlier service, and said, I've been wondering all week if I'm really a Christian. And I looked over at it and I said, me too. Um, how about the Lord's Supper? How about you and I go to the Lord's Supper to be assured of what's true? How can we know? Because these words of mine also include words like this, come to me, also from Matthew, come to me all who are weary and burdened. For I am gentle and humble in heart. I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls in me. Or John chapter 10, nothing in all creation, not even you, not even the way that you fall short of the Sermon on the Mount every day of your life, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 49, even though a mother may forget her child, I am deeply aware that a mother can forget her child with, with mom being in fourth stage Alzheimer's. Many of you know this. Even the greatest mom in the world can forget her children. But the Lord your God will never forget you. So I was reading this really great book uh, called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb by uh, Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel. And what they did was they interviewed several um, sort of older, uh, revered, highly esteemed um, voices in the you know, Christian world, um, you know, the likes of Marva Dawn and the likes of J.I. Packer and Eugene Peterson and um, the likes of, of, uh, of uh, James and Rita Houston. Now, James Houston was uh, mentored by C.S. Lewis, and he left Oxford in order to start Regent University in 
Vancouver. And um, you know, Region has given us people like Marva Dawn and J.I. Packer and, and, and others. And um, you know, Jamin Goggin and, and Kyle Strobel were asking questions of these sort of seasoned saints. And, and one of the questions that, um, that they asked James and Rita was, what do you fear the most? And, you know, Rita has advanced uh, dementia, and dementia is stealing her memory, and it is stealing their memories from her. And when asked, what is your biggest fear at this stage of your life, James looks over at Rita, and he says these words, Rita is worried that she, that as she loses her memory, she will forget Jesus. And so I remind her, what matters is not that you remember him, but that he remembers you. See, here's the closer. It's not our job to keep ourselves in the storm shelter. It's not our, our job to work our way toward the storm shelter. It is our job to, to just submit to our Father in heaven who's waking us up from our sleep as the tornado comes, and he tells us we're right in the path, and he sweeps us up in his, up in his arms, and he takes us under the shelter, and the shelter is Jesus. The shelter is the words of Christ, which are our promises and our anchor. And then we ask ourselves, how do I know? How do I know that I'm not one of the self-deceived? I've already given you some clues. That, 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 you, that you've got this gutsy thing about you, that, that you're ready to hear the parts of the Bible that you're not prone to underline or highlight, like, like you're there. But the other thing is this, you have a speech already prepared for when you face Christ on the judgment day. There are two speeches that are going to be given at the judgment seat of Christ, and one will represent the house built on sand, the other the house built on the rock. The house built on sand speech will be this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, that, and the other in your name? And I will look at them and I will say, depart from me because I never knew you. And then the other speech will be this. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If that's the speech you've already prepared, even if you forget him, even if your family members have to say the long goodbye because of dementia or Alzheimer's or something else, even if you forget him, he will not forget you. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you will never forget us. What matters is not that we remember you, but that you remember us. Father, embed that Judgment Day speech in our hearts that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God and the Savior of sinners. You are the shelter from the storm that is to come. Thanks be to God for that safety. Amen.